said before, God has called each one of us to run a race. And it's a long distance race over many kinds of terrain. In the last session we spoke about motivation and encouragement we have to keep running. But in spite of that, in spite of that motivation, in spite of that encouragement, why does it sometimes feel so hard? Like we can't catch our breath. Or like every step is harder than the step before. Or you get that little catch in your side. Have you guys ever gotten that when you're running? And hard to keep going. So why does it often seem that everybody else is running faster than we are? Maybe it's, maybe it's because we're out of shape. Oh. I'll own up to that. But perhaps we have not prepared or trained adequately for our race. If you look up long distance running on Wikipedia, you'll find that it is also referred to as endurance running. And they define it as a form of continuous running mile after mile. This kind of running requires preparation and ongoing training on the part of the runner to keep going. And this is the kind of race that we run. And it requires similar preparation, preparation and a similar training regimen. So let's go back once again to Hebrews 12. You might as well just leave your Bibles open there. I don't know why I shut mine. I've been studying this for a while now, and so my Bible kind of opens right to that page. <laughs> there is instruction for us here in verse 1 that will help us to continue to run our race for the long haul. Let's read verse 1 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice the words here, let us. Let us. The author of Hebrews uses these two words over and over again throughout the whole letter. And every time we see them, they're a call to spur the believers on to right running in the race. And he includes himself in each one of those exhortations. But these passages apply to all of us. They are called hortatory passages. Hortatory is an adjective that means urging to some course of conduct or action, exhorting or encouraging. In each of these sections of encouragement, there's an aspect of looking back or because of this and then looking forward. Do this or press on to this. In Hebrews chapter 4 alone, there are a number of these hortatory statements. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Therefore, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And the it there is the finish line of our race, or God's rest. Verse 11 of chapter 4 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So notice the therefore in both of those verses. You have to look back, like we said earlier, to see what the author just said to know or uh, to be able to understand what he's about to say. We're not going to 
take the time to do that in chapter 4 right now, but I want you to understand the looking back aspect of these hortatory passages. Um, verse 14 of chapter 4. Since we have a great high priest. Okay, there's the glance back. Because we have this great high priest. And then it says, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 16 of chapter 4. Because we have this great high priest. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We see it again in chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Chapter 10, verse 23 says, Since we have this confidence, and since we have this great high priest, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And 10.24 follows that with, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Then we have our passage here in Hebrews 12.1. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, again, there's our look back, let us lay aside every weight. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. And then, let us run. And at the end of chapter 12 and verse 28, we have, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And then finally in Hebrews 13, 15, the author says, Through him then, again we have to look back to what he, he just said, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So all of these exhortations involve a look back and then a call to action. And that call is some form, it's a call for some form of perseverance. These are calls to learn and grow in Christ and to persevere, to keep on keeping on, to keep running all the way to the end. Now back to chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also. So the author of Hebrews is using the cloud of witnesses, like we said earlier, as an example to us. He's saying, look at their lives. See how they prepared. See how they trained. See how they ran. Let us also follow their example and run so as to finish. They did it, and we can too. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to convey to us. He's encouraging the recipients of his letter and ultimately all believers in Christ. And he includes himself as well. He says, let us also. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. To lay aside here means to strip it off and put it out of the way. So we are to cast away every weight. What kind of weight is he talking about? Are the weight and the sin the same thing? What exactly is the author of Hebrews telling us to do? The Greek word that's used here for weight, or some translations say encumbrances, can mean physical weight or unnecessary baggage. And it carries the idea of something that hinders or slows down. An endurance race is hard enough if you're running light. 
but it's significantly more difficult and maybe even impossible if you're trying to carry a heavy load while you're running. It's believed that the ancient Greek runners would run virtually naked to avoid any encumbrance. And Olympic athletes today, they run wearing tight-fitting spandex and only really as much as they need to cover the essentials. They may come into the stadium wearing sweats or a windsuit, but they pretty quickly shed that when they get ready to run because they don't want anything to interfere with how quickly they can run. They don't want anything that will slow them down or drain their energy. Pastor Stephen Cole gave this illustration. Picture the start of the Boston Marathon. The lean, muscular Kenyan runners are at the front of the pack waiting for the starting gun. A couple of skinny American runners are there too. But next to them is a large, flabby guy wearing a parka, all-weather pants, and hiking boots with a 50-pound pack. You ask curiously, what's in your pack? He says, oh, I've got all the sodas and Twinkies that I'll need to finish this race. And you're thinking, right, this guy wouldn't stand a chance of finishing, let alone winning, because he has not laid aside every encumbrance. Notice here in verse 1 that the author of Hebrews distinguishes the weights from the sins. Weights or encumbrances are not always bad things. They might actually be good things that have become misplaced priorities in our lives. They are things that are not necessarily by nature wrong, but they're wrong because they keep us from running as we should. In the case of the Hebrews that this letter was written to, it might have been things of the law or legalism that had them weighed down. They were trying to run, still holding on to the law in some ways. If you read through the letter to the Hebrews, you'll see that. Those aspects of the law that they were still trying to keep, they weren't necessarily bad, but God had made a better way for them. That's what the writer of Hebrews keeps saying throughout the letter. You have Jesus. Now run and don't look back. Cast all of that aside. Set your single target track on Jesus and run. The choice we have when it comes to weights is not necessarily between good and bad, but it might be between good and better, or even better and best. For example, sweatpants are great, but shorts and a tank top in the Texas heat are probably a better idea for running. And there's nothing wrong with wearing hiking boots, but if you ditch the hiking boots and put on some running shoes, you're likely going to run faster and get fewer blisters. Backpacks are also great, but if we drop the extra weight, we just might finish the race. In the interest of helping us apply what I'm saying, I want to throw out a few more specific examples. Let's say that in the morning we don't have time to read our Bible and scroll through social media before we get on with the rest of our day. Which do we choose? We might argue that we need to be aware of what's going on in the world. Maybe so. But where does it say that in Scripture? Here's what Peter does say at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, put away... And the Greek word there is the same word that's used here in Hebrews 12.1 that's translated lay aside. Put away all malice 
and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Get rid of those things. Cast them away. Then he says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. And that's God's word. That by it you may grow up into salvation. Like a newborn baby longing for life-sustaining sustenance. We should long for God's word that much. Newborn, newborn babies wake up crying for that milk. Peter says that we should be like that. So do, do we read God's word or do we scroll through our phones in the morning? Or maybe we don't have time to do anything because we don't set our alarm early enough to spend even 10 minutes with God. So while there's nothing inherently wrong with our phones and there's nothing inherently wrong with sleep, we all need that, both can be overused or used poorly. We need to shed the weight of loving sleep or our smartphones or anything else more than we love the one that we call Lord. Too much recreation can be another encumbrance in our race. We all can use some free time here and there for renewal. That's what we're here for. But the question is, how much time do we really need? The idea of me time has become an idol in our culture. Paul spoke on a number of occasions of his life being poured out for those that he ministered to. And that doesn't sound like he was concerned about me time. Many Christians fill every evening binge-watching Netflix or playing computer games, but they don't have time to study the Bible or to pray. And we may view the entire weekend as a time for recreation, even if it means missing church. Corporate worship takes a back seat to our desire to be entertained. To run the race well, all the way to the finish line, we have to lay aside the things that get in the way, to put them in their proper place. Questions we need to be asking aren't necessarily, what's wrong with this movie or that TV show? What's wrong with listening to this music or participating in that activity? A better question might be, is this going to help me grow in godliness? Or have I spent any time with the Lord today? Is He more important to me than whatever this thing is that I'm considering? If this whatever is not going to help us run, we need to cast it off. It's dead weight, and it will only make the race harder to run and could potentially even keep us from finishing the race. Joy, was it you last night that said, somebody said something that they thought this race was more like a, who said that to me, like a, a Thor. Oh, Trina, were you the one? Oh yeah, we got lots of mud and all sorts of yeah, stuff. Exactly, exactly. Oh, it's the, it's the Thor yeah, exactly. Last fall, one of my sons signed up for a Spartan race. Same idea. This is my son that was severely asthmatic well into his teenage years, and there were many days and nights spent in the hospital with him where I wondered if he would live into his 20s. His asthma was so bad. 
we felt we felt like the hospital was our home away from home for many many years um, but now he wants to run a race and not an easy race a spartan is a half marathon it's 13.1 miles and it has 30 obstacles along the way now do you think he's going to run that race called turkey no <laughs> i'm concerned that he's running it at all but he started training last November, and he started by casting off some things. Things like sugar, and a few extra pounds. Things like time on Netflix, and playing games, video games. And those things weren't necessarily bad in their proper place, but they weren't going to help him run this race so that he could finish it. And so just like that, we have to strip off and cast away even things that appear harmless if they hinder our progress, if they divert our attention, sap our energy, or leave us no time to spend with the Lord. If we believe that these things are in any way earning us God's favor, they have to be set aside. John Piper applies this teaching about weights. He says, The race of the Christian life is not fought well or run well by asking what's wrong with this or that, but by asking is it in the way of greater faith and greater love and greater purity and greater courage and greater humility and greater patience and greater self-control. Not is it a sin, but does it help me run? Is it in the way? Don't ask about your music, your movies, your parties, your habits. What's wrong with it? Ask, does it help me run the race? Does it help me run for Jesus? Hebrews 12.1 is a command to look at your life, think hard about what you are doing, and get ruthless about what stays and what goes. Here's the thing. If we are going to run our race, we must be willing to change, to lay aside every weight. Charles Spurgeon once said, Like Olympic runners who are willing to gain any legitimate legal advantage in order to win, we are to lay aside anything and everything that tethers us to this earth and run with our face set like flint toward the city whose builder is God. We should run to our heavenly Jerusalem, wherein dwells our great reward, Jesus Christ. He says, with our faces set like flint, single target track on Jesus. And there's another thing the author of Hebrews says that we are to lay aside, and that's the sin that clings so closely, or some translations say so easily entangles us. The idea in the Greek that is translated clings so closely is to control tightly. It gives a sense of something that would wind around the body and bind or hinder movement. In biblical times, people wore long robes. Have you ever tried to run in a long robe or a long dress? It gets all wound around your legs, and it'll trip you up. Well, in order to run in those days, in Bible times, they would do something that Scripture calls girding your loins. And they would reach down between their legs and grab the back part of their robe and pull it up and tuck it in their belt. So essentially, like making 
shorts out of it, and that would free them up to run. So that's kind of the idea we get here. That would definitely free us up to run. But the idea in this passage is really not freeing up your legs so much as it is taking that rub off altogether and getting rid of it. So we need to get rid of our sin completely. And what sin is it that we need to lay aside? John MacArthur says of this sin, he says, Obviously all sin is a hindrance to Christian living. And the reference here may be to sin in general. But use of the definite article. In the Greek it, said, it would say the sin, and some translations translate it that way. That, he says that seems to indicate a particular sin. He says, if there's one particular sin that hinders the race of faith, it is unbelief or doubting God. Doubting and living in faith contradict each other. Unbelief entangles the Christian's feet so that he cannot run. It wraps itself around us so that we trip and stumble every time we try to move for the Lord, if we try at all. It easily entangles us. When we allow sin in our lives, especially unbelief, it is quite easy for Satan to keep us from running. Any sin can keep us from running, and at its core, all sin is some form of unbelief. We must be rid of it. When we talk about running a race, it's generally assumed that every runner is going to do whatever they have to do to get into shape and to stay in shape to be able to endure whatever race that, they've, that they're running. If you're not willing to do that, why enter the race to begin with? You're not going to be able to finish. And I think that's, maybe that's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 14 that we should count the cost before coming to him. Because once you enter the race, it's a full-on marathon, and we need to keep running. If we are disciples of Jesus, we must be committed to ensuring that we finish what we started. This race will demand every ounce of energy we have. It will demand discipline and training if we're going to endure to the end. Something to note here, too, getting fit for a race is not something a runner does once and calls it good. The work doesn't stop. It's an ongoing process. We don't cast aside sin once and call it good. We have adversaries in this race as well. One of them is our own flesh. It's like the sweatsuit that we need to remove in order to run, but it keeps growing back, and we have to keep taking it off again. We have another adversary as well. Scripture says he's one that's prowling around, nipping at our heels, trying to trip us up so that he can devour us. He would like nothing more than to see us fall and not get back up. I mentioned last night that perseverance is our daily work. As a part of that, casting aside the sin that clings so closely must be our daily work, moment by moment. John Owen said in his book, The Mortification of Sin, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Similarly, Paul says in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we must cast off these weights and sins daily over and over again to be rid of them completely so that we can run unabated. Our passage in Hebrews 12 now brings us to a vital phrase. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And I would venture to say that most most people who profess to be Christians really aren't running at all. Some of us are jogging. Some of us are walking. Did you know that's a thing? (laughs) It's like a cross between walking and jogging. Evidently it's a thing. Some might be just walking. Some might be crawling or sitting and not really going anywhere. Some of us might even be going backward. But that's not what the Christian life is all about. Christian life is not a Sunday afternoon stroll. It's a race. Again, it says let us run the race with endurance. We must run, and we must do it with endurance. The word endurance there in the Greek is hupomene, and it means a steady determination to keep going. It means continuing when everything within you wants to slow down or quit. It carries the idea of patiently remaining or abiding under. A different form of this same word is used in verse 2, speaking of Jesus enduring the cross. And Vine's Expository Dictionary says of the use of that word in verse 2, that it is to remain in a place instead of leaving it, to endure bravely and trustfully. It goes on to say that this is a call for believers to be patient in our suffering as Christ was in his. But it isn't patience like in sitting around just taking what comes. It's an active determination. It's, it's unresting. It's steady. It refuses to be deflected. It is a continuous, patient, yet persistent, persevering attitude that keeps going. And that's the kind of attitude that it takes to win the race of the Christian life. Quitting is not an option. One reason that I believe many who profess Christ end up leaving the faith is that they start out believing a lie or not fully understanding the truth of the gospel. They view following Christ as a get-out-of-jail-free card. If I follow Christ, nothing bad will ever happen to me. And then, when inevitably something bad does happen... They think that God has not done his part. I witnessed this idea in action a few years ago, actually at a homeschool conference in Arlington. There were a number of speakers there that year who had finished their homeschooling journeys, and they were there to encourage others that were still on the path of educating their children. But what came through their speaking was not encouraging at all. I know I've shared some of this, shared this with some of you before, but what came through was bitterness and anger toward God. Wow. Yeah, it was it was really not encouraging. It was discouraging. These women had given a good portion of their adult lives to schooling their children. 
But they did so, I believe, buying into a lie. And um, they misunderstood one verse in Scripture, and I know you guys know what I'm going to say. Proverbs 22, 6. Exactly. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And they clung to that verse like it's a promise. If I do what God has called me to do, he will guarantee that my children will follow him all the days of their lives. That verse is a principle. It's not a promise. It's a general truth, but it's not a guarantee. And some of their children, you guessed it, were not following the Lord. And the overwhelming attitude that came through their speaking was that God had not lived up to his end of the bargain. I've shared my story with you last night, so you know that all of my children are not walking with the Lord. And that... When I heard them speak at that conference, all I could think is, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to end this journey and be bitter. Um, If we view Christianity as a guarantee against or an antidote for every ill and evil in this life, we will be disillusioned and disappointed. Because the gospel never promises anything like that. Scripture tells us time and time again that following Christ will entail trial and suffering, but also that there is joy and reward to be found even in the suffering. God can use it to grow and mature us into the likeness of his Son, our Savior, if we will cooperate with that. God can build our spiritual muscle, if you will, to help us keep running the race. And he can do that through trials and sufferings. He can build our endurance through the trials if we view them properly and cling to the truth of our sovereign God. Now some of us may not be thinking like those former homeschooling moms seem to, that our actions somehow earn God's favor or prevent his punishment. But maybe we're clinging to more of a suspicious faith. Have you ever experienced a time where things were going pretty well, but you kind of looked to the future with the hairy eyeball? (laughs) Kind of like uh, looking for the storm clouds in the distance? That would be me. Dreading, dreading the next trial that you know inevitably is out there and not being able to live in the moment and enjoy the moment because you're anxious about what the future might hold. Some of us have a tendency to look at the future, to look at God's ways, his plans, his intentions, his purposes for us. We look at those with a lack of trust and even suspicion. This race that we are in is a fight and it's a fight for faith we know that our God is sovereign nothing takes him by surprise and everything that comes to us comes through his hand but we must cling to the knowledge that in addition to him being sovereign and I said this last night he is sovereign but in addition to that he is so very good Trillia Newbell in her book Sacred Endurance says, If God is only sovereign and not also good, there's reason to fear. But God is good and sovereign, and he has promised to do good. 
but his goodness doesn't equal a lack of trials. When I look to the unknown, I need not fear because I am in the hands of a good God, not because there are no troubles ahead. He is my Father, and I can rest and trust Him. He is who He is, whether I believe it or not. And so we say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And we look to the future with hope and joy because of who God is. He is sovereign and he is good. Reminding ourselves of that will help us to run our race with endurance when the times are hard. There's a constant battle in this race to remember to look to Jesus and to trust our Father. We often find any reason to look away and to try to make sense of this life apart from God. But we must lock the radar of our eyes and our minds on him, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It requires fighting for faith and fighting against unbelief. Suffering will come. It will come to all of us in one form or another. And I don't say that to make us view the future with suspicion, but to help us to see the reality of life in a fallen world and to help us to prepare for the hurdles that lie ahead in each of our races because every race has them. Jesus himself said, In the world you will have tribulation. There will be hurdles. Some races have more than others, and some have larger ones, while others may only have bumps in the road. But they all have them. And suffering can be one of the biggest hindrances to our endurance in the race. So what do we do when it comes? Suffering involves pain, and that can make enduring difficult. When I think of suffering, one of the first people that comes to my mind is Johnny Erickson Tata. You guys all know her story. Back in 1967, at the age of 17, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay, misjudged the shallowness of the water, and suffered a devastating spinal injury that resulted in her becoming a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down. In addition to that, she has suffered through two bouts of cancer, and just recently battled her way through COVID-19. She's now 71 years old. In those 71 years old, she has endured great suffering, and she knows what it is to run the race in pain. She doesn't pretend that her sorrows aren't many, and that her pain doesn't exist, but instead she has spent her life focused on Jesus and on others. She has endured well, at least to this point. When I was writing this, she was in the midst of battling COVID-19, and I wondered if I would have to change that, if I would have to say she endured well all the way to the end. But by God's grace, she did not die from it. The author of Hebrews gave us a whole chapter of examples of pain and suffering and endurance for us to follow in Hebrews 11 that we just talked about earlier. Also, we have the Apostle Paul. He was a man who endured much. We talked some about that last night. 2 Corinthians 11 
verses 23 through 28, details for us many of the hardships that Paul went through. He was persecuted, imprisoned, and beaten, even near to death. He was lashed, stoned, shipwrecked, adrift at sea, in danger from rivers, robbers, his own people, the Gentiles, the city, the wilderness, the sea, and from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food altogether, in cold and exposure. Not to mention, he says, of the daily anxiety he felt for all the churches he ministered to. That's a lot of suffering. But we never see in Scripture that Paul asked God to remove any of those things. We do see in Philippians 4.11 that he learned to be content in whatever situation he was in. But there was a consistent pain that Paul did ask the Lord to remove. Paul had a thorn. called it a thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what that thorn was, but perhaps it involved a greater amount of pain than any of those other things because he did ask for God to remove it three times. God's response to him in 2 Corinthians 12.9 was, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responded by saying, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So what can we learn from Paul's thorn as it relates to our own suffering? First, God's grace is sufficient. His grace is poured out for the suffering. His grace is enough to sustain us. It isn't our strength that keeps us running. It's God's grace. Also, we know from 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, that Paul believed there was a purpose in his suffering. He believed that the thorn was there, that it was intended to keep him from being conceited. He trusted that God, in his goodness and in his sovereignty, he had a purpose for Paul's pain. And we must trust that there is purpose in our suffering as well. Another thing that we can learn from Paul's thorn is that enduring pain doesn't require that we ignore it or pretend that it's not there or simply sit back and accept whatever comes. Paul didn't. He pleaded with God to remove the suffering. Scripture doesn't tell us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It says that God is near and loves the brokenhearted, the needy, and the weak. God himself tells us, and Stephanie shared the scripture with us last night, Isaiah 43, 1-3, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, it doesn't say if, it says when. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, 
the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God has promised to be with us in the storms of life. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. We're given examples within the Psalms to weep and to mourn and to lament. It's okay to ask God why. If we're asking out of a genuine desire to understand what's happening and not out of an angry, accusatory attitude. Author and editor Al Sue wrote, Lament focuses our grief in the proper direction. It turns us toward God. In lament, we can ask God to take the pain and suffering away, even as we trust that if he doesn't, there is purpose for us in it. Oftentimes, we think we have to be strong during trials as if our strength will protect us. If we aren't weak and vulnerable, we'll be okay, right? As my husband was reading what I'd written, he wrote in the margin there, Did you read this? <laughs> Paul says that he boasts in his weaknesses because it is there that God's grace can do its good work. Because Paul was weak, he knew that it was only the Lord that was sustaining him. And so his boast was in the Lord. And the same should be true of us. God's grace can sustain us through whatever pain we may experience. Whatever suffering comes our way, his grace is sufficient. Pain is hard, and he knows it. Enduring suffering is sometimes like torture, and he doesn't ask us to deny that. Sometimes we want to give up, and he doesn't tell us just to grin and bear it. He does tell us that he will never leave us. His grace is sufficient means that he is with us in the suffering. He will sustain us through it. He will keep us running. He will help us to endure, and it is only in him that we can. The psalmist in Psalm 119.71 said, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Of this verse, John Piper says, One of God's gifts to us in suffering is that we are granted to see and experience depths of his word that a life of ease would never yield. And Martin Luther understood this as well, stating there are three rules for understanding Scripture. Praying, meditating, and suffering. Glenna Marshall says something similar about God's presence. There are some things we learn as believers that can only be revealed through the fires of suffering. There are some things in life that we cannot learn without having walked through sorrow. Being certain of God's nearness and suffering is one of them. Paul tells us in Romans 5.3 that we can rejoice in our suffering because that suffering produces what? Perseverance. Yes. James echoes that when he tells us to count it all joy when we experience trials because the testing of our faith produces endurance. And that the full effect of our endurance 
is that we might be perfect and complete. That's James 1, 2 through 4. James encourages us later in that chapter saying, The one who endures is blessed and will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Our perseverance is learned and grown in seasons of trial and suffering. Our suffering can come from things within our own minds like worry, anxiety, depression, bitterness, anger. We, I mean, we could go on and on with that list. But it can also come from things that happen to us like health challenges, car wrecks, unfaithfulness, job loss, parenting challenges. Some suffering occurs because of the circumstances around us. Um, think of this past year, there's been plenty of suffering of its own. We are in a time of great need to endure, and there are obstacles to it at every twist and turn. But through all of these circumstances, within or around us, we learn to walk by faith, as if seeing him who is unseen, single target track on Jesus, trusting that God is in control and remembering that he is also very good. So, as the author of Hebrews says, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance through the good times when it feels easy and the dark days when we feel like we can't keep going, always looking to God, looking to Jesus for the grace to persevere because his grace is sufficient, and in our perseverance, he is glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again, God, for your word. We would be lost without it, God. Thank you for the consistent encouragement within it for us to stay on course persevere, to remain faithful to you, Lord. God, you are holy, and you have called us to be holy as well. God, would you give us eyes to see the things in our lives that are keeping us from running all out to you. Would you please enable us to see the sin that clings so closely for what it is. Help us to see it as you see it, God. Help us to acknowledge the ways we doubt you, the ways we doubt your love for us, and the blatant ways that we disobey and dishonor you every day, Lord. God, may we, may we be quick, quick to confess our unfaithfulness, quick to lay aside these weights and sin, quick to get back up when we fall and to keep running. May we trust that your grace, Lord, will carry us all the way. God, you are sovereign and you are good. Help us always to remember both of those. 
We love you, Lord. Teach us to love you more. For your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.